Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care, along with Sarah Moore. We are here to bring you the March 2013 podcast. This is again a very full issue, so we will cover the first 10 papers in some detail and then give a brief overview of the remaining papers in the issue. Beginning last month, case reports and teaching cases are published online only. So go to our website, www.rcjournal.com, to view the entire issue. Also, you may want to check our website early each month, as the issue is now posted online weeks before the print issue will arrive in your mailbox. Sarah, let's get started. Our first paper this month is Evaluation of Recruited Lung Volume at Plateau Inspiratory Pressure with PEEP Using Bedside Digital Chest X-Ray in Acute Lung Injury and Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome Patients by Wale and colleagues. In 14 subjects, PEEP of 5 cm water and 15 cm of water were prospectively applied in a random order for 10 minutes. At the end of each period, chest X-Ray was taken using a digital portable device and a pressure volume curve of the respiratory system was performed. The authors also assessed PaO2 and the static and the dynamic compliance of the respiratory system. Change in end expiratory lung volume between tidal breath and relaxation volume of the respiratory system was determined. The ratio of lung density in each region between PEEP of 15 and PEEP of 5 were computed. Recruited lung volume was determined from the pressure volume curves. There was a significant negative correlation between recruited lung volume and lung density. The reduction in lung density tended to correlate with the increase in compliance and in PaO2 between PEEP of 15 cm water and PEEP of 5 cm water. The authors concluded that digital chest x-ray done at the bedside in acute lung injury and ARDS subjects was able to detect a reduction in density between PEEP of 5 cm water and PEEP of 15 cm water, which correlated with recruited lung volume. In this study, it was shown that a digital chest x-ray done at the bedside was able to detect a reduction in density between PEEP of 5 centimeters of water and PEEP of 15 centimeters of water, which correlated with recruited lung volume. Further work is needed to determine whether this will be clinically useful for setting PEEP. As Ruby and colleagues point out in their editorial, there are a number of methods that can be used to monitor alveolar recruitment at the bedside. These include assessment of pressure volume curves, the stress index, lung volume, and ultrasound. What remains to be determined is whether any of these is superior to another. Evaluation of clinical and functional parameters in female patients with biomass smoke exposure is by Kexel et al. 55 patients who had been referred to the hospital between January 2008 and December 2010 and who met the inclusion criteria were accepted to the study. Data on the place they live, biomass exposure duration, lung function parameters, and arterial blood gases were recorded. Significant differences in FEV1 and the ratio of FEV1 to FVC existed between the subgroups of duration of biomass exposure. FEV1% and the ratio of FEV1 to FVC were highest in the less than 30-hour years exposure group. 
In the presence of animal dung use, the odds ratio for the risk of FEV1 to FVC ratio less than 70% was 3.5. Animal dung and wood use were observed in women at severe and very severe FEV1 stages. The authors concluded that biomass exposure can have effects on lung function test parameters. Animal dung use is primarily related to risk of deterioration of FEV1 to FVC ratio when compared to other biomass fuels. Protective health measures should be taken by assessing the risks in areas where biomass exposure is intense. Indoor air pollution and exposure to biomass smoke are risk factors for pulmonary diseases among women in developing countries. Coxo et al. evaluated clinical and functional parameters in female patients with biomass smoke exposure. They found that using animal dung as fuel is related to risk of deterioration of FEV1-FVC ratio when compared to other biomass fuels. In his related editorial, Miller addresses the conundrum of properly diagnosing COPD in a non-smoker who may have exposures other than cigarette smoke or a pathologic process in the absence of inhaled noxious agents. Next is the paper by Kalam entitled Physician-Ordered Aerosol Therapy versus Respiratory Therapist-Driven Aerosol Protocol, The Effect on Resource Utilization. This was a retrospective analysis of prospectively collected data obtained during the initial phase of a quality improvement project. Over a period of two weeks, RTs administered physician-ordered bronchodilator treatments. During this time, they assessed the subject's clinical status and what they would have recommended in regards to bronchodilator treatment frequency following an RT-driven protocol. 48 subjects were ordered bronchodilator treatments, which resulted in 88 assessments. The utilization of a protocol would have resulted in 48% of the bronchodilator orders administered every 6 hours as needed, and 31% of orders administered every 8 hours, compared with 2% and 2% respectively in the physician-ordered group. Conversely, physician-ordered treatments were prescribed every 4 hours in 64% of cases, compared with 11% in the RT-driven protocol group. Total bronchodilator therapy cost in the physician-ordered group was $1,673, whereas it would have been $905 in the RT-driven group. The authors concluded that application of an RT-driven bronchodilator protocol can reduce the frequency of bronchodilator treatments compared with a physician-ordered strategy. The utilization of respiratory therapist-driven protocols for single interventions such as oxygen titration and bronchopulmonary hygiene and protocols consisting of multiple interventions have been associated with improvements in resource utilization. These authors found that application of an RT-driven bronchodilator protocol could potentially reduce the frequency of bronchodilator treatments compared with a physician-ordered strategy, and that this could result in reduction of costs in patients who require bronchodilator therapy. As Maselli and Fernandez indicate in their editorial, the use of RT-driven protocols leads to better allocation of respiratory care and at a lower cost. 
Respiratory therapy organizational changes are associated with increased respiratory care utilization is by Parker and colleagues. They conducted a single-center quasi-experimental study comparing 651 patients before the RT services reorganization with 1,073 patients after reorganization. Patients in the two groups were similar in terms of age, comorbidity, and acuity of illness. Mechanically ventilated patients had similar prevalence of respiratory diseases. There was an increase in numbers of spontaneous breathing trials, chest physiotherapy, bronchoalveolar lavage, and lower respiratory cultures in the mechanically ventilated patients post-intervention. The authors concluded that a multi-component intervention, including an increase in the RT-to-patient ratio, improved RT orientation and establishment of a core staffing model, were associated with increased respiratory resource utilization and evidence-based practice. The effect of respiratory therapy organizational factors on respiratory resource utilization was evaluated by Parker and colleagues. They found that a multi-component intervention, including an increase in RT to patient ratio, improved RT orientation, and establishment of a core staffing model were associated with increased respiratory resource utilization and evidence-based practice, especially in lower respiratory tract cultures and spontaneous breathing trials. Central Respiratory Drive in Patients with Neuromuscular Diseases is by Rialp et al. They prospectively studied 16 subjects with neuromuscular disease and 26 subjects with ICU-acquired weakness. They measured the hypercapnic drive response, defined as the ratio of change in airway occlusion pressure 0.1 seconds after the start of inspiration to the change in PaCO2, and the hypercapnic ventilatory response, defined as the ratio of change in minute ventilation to change in PaCO2. Hypercapnic drive response and hypercapnic ventilatory response were lower in the group with neuromuscular disease than in the group with ICU-acquired weakness. Duration of weaning was similar in both groups. The duration of weaning was longer in subjects with hypercapnic drive response equal or less than 0.19 centimeters of water per millimeters of mercury. The authors concluded that subjects with acute hypercapnic respiratory failure due to neuromuscular disease had reduced hypercapnic drive response compared to those with ICU-acquired weakness. The duration of weaning was longer in subjects with reduced hypercapnic drive response. The contribution of the central respiratory drive in hypercapnic respiratory failure of neuromuscular diseases is controversial. These authors found that subjects with acute hypercapnic respiratory failure due to neuromuscular disease had reduced hypercapnic drive response compared to a group of quadriplegic patients with ICU-acquired weakness. The duration of weaning was also longer in subjects with reduced hypercapnic drive response. These results have important implications in the care of patients with neuromuscular disease recovering from acute respiratory failure. Next, we have the paper by Volsko et al. The Asthma Awareness Patch Program for Girl Scouts, an Evaluation of Educational Effectiveness. 
They recruited Girl Scouts from a four-county area in northeastern Ohio. Educational components were in compliance with the guidelines established by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's National Asthma Education and Prevention Program. Participants completed a demographic form and pre-test before and post-test and program evaluation immediately following the program. 86 girls between 5 and 16 years of age participated, 84% of whom were white. 21% of the participants were diagnosed and treated for asthma, 48% resided with an asthmatic, and 72% had post-test scores significantly higher than their pre-test scores. The authors concluded that the assessment tool demonstrated moderate internal reliability. Participation in the program enhanced participants' knowledge of trigger identification, asthma pathophysiology, and treatment. Carefully designed educational programs can improve asthma knowledge, management practices, and health outcomes. Fosco et al. used pre-post-testing to determine whether the curriculum provided by the Girl Scouts Asthma Awareness Patch Program improved recipients' knowledge. They found that participation in the program enhanced participants' knowledge of various aspects of asthma and its treatment. Comparing the effects of rise time and inspiratory cycling criteria on six different mechanical ventilators is by Gonzalez et al. The research utilized a breathing simulator and different ventilator models. All ventilators were set to a spontaneous mode of ventilation with pressure support of 8 centimeters of water and PEEP of 5 centimeters of water. A minimum and maximum setting for rise time and cycling criteria were examined. Exhaled tidal volume, inspiratory time, and peak flow measurements were recorded for each simulation. Significant differences were found when comparing minimum and maximum rise time and minimum and maximum cycling criteria for each ventilator. The authors concluded that significant differences in exhaled tidal volume, inspiratory time, and peak flow were observed by adjusting rise time and cycling criteria, which demonstrates that, during pressure support ventilation, adjustments in rise time and or cycling criteria can produce important changes in inspiratory parameters. Inspiratory rise time and cycling criteria are important settings in pressure support ventilation. The purpose of the study by Gonzalez and colleagues was to investigate the impact of rise time and respiratory cycling criteria on current generation ventilators. They found that significant differences in exhaled tidal volume, inspiratory time, and peak flow occurred by adjusting rise time and cycling criteria. They also found major differences among ventilator manufacturers when considering inspiratory rise time and cycling criteria. These results are worthy of consideration when using pressure support ventilation. Maximum rate of pressure development and maximal relaxation rate of respiratory muscles in patients with cystic fibrosis is by Dasios and colleagues. The aim of this study was to evaluate the maximum rate of pressure development and maximal relaxation rate and to investigate their possible application as accessory indices of respiratory muscle function in patients with cystic fibrosis. Compared to controls, the patients with CF exhibited increased maximal relaxation rate and decreased maximum rate of pressure development during maximal respiratory effort. 
maximum rate of pressure development and maximal relaxation rate were significantly related to nutritional and pulmonary function impairment in the patients with CF. These findings suggest that patients with CF are at increased risk of respiratory muscle fatigue. Respiratory muscle function in patients with cystic fibrosis has been studied by measurement of maximal inspiratory pressure, maximal expiratory pressure, and the pressure time index of the inspiratory muscles. The maximum rate of pressure development during PI max, maximum rate of pressure development during PE max, maximal relaxation rate during PI max, and maximal relaxation rate during PE max have not been studied in cystic fibrosis. The results of this study suggest that patients with CF are at increased risk of respiratory muscle fatigue. Effect of percutaneous tracheostomy on gas exchange in hypoxemic and non-hypoxemic mechanically ventilated patients is by Balani et al. In this retrospective study, clinical records of 107 patients from a general ICU and neurosurgical ICU who underwent percutaneous tracheostomy were revised to compare ventilator settings, gas exchange, and hemodynamic parameters on the day before and the day after the procedure. A pre-established subgroup analysis on hypoxemic patients was also performed. Among all patients, there was a small decrease in PaCO2 after tracheostomy. In the subgroup of hypoxemic patients, after the tracheostomy, an increase in PaO2 to FiO2 ratio and a decrease in PaCO2 were found. The authors concluded that percutaneous tracheostomy did not worsen gas exchange and, in hypoxemic patients, tracheostomy appeared to improve oxygenation and ventilation. The influence of percutaneous tracheostomy on ventilator dependence and clinical outcomes has been investigated in a number of studies. However, the impact of tracheostomy on gas exchange has been scarcely explored. These authors found that percutaneous tracheostomy did not worsen gas exchange in a cohort of ICU subjects. Moreover, in hypoxemic subjects, it appeared to improve oxygenation and ventilation. single-set resistance training on quality of life in COPD patients enrolled in pulmonary rehabilitation is by Benton and Wagner. Nineteen men and women with COPD completed eight weeks of pulmonary rehabilitation alone or pulmonary rehabilitation plus single-set resistance training. There were no significant differences in quality of life between pulmonary rehabilitation with versus without single-set resistance training. Both groups demonstrated significant improvements in quality of life, including the physical function, role physical, vitality, social functioning, and mental health domains. The authors concluded that addition of single-set resistance training to traditional pulmonary rehabilitation does not affect overall improvements in quality of life that are influenced primarily by improvements in upper body strength. 
Single set resistance training improves strength and function in older adults with COPD. However, its effect on quality of life has not been evaluated. These authors found that the addition of single set resistance training to traditional pulmonary rehabilitation did not affect overall improvements in quality of life. This suggests a threshold effect for exercise training such that once a threshold stimulus has been achieved, further improvements in quality of life are not dose-dependent. Wallace et al. compared the effect of three positions on peak expiratory flow maneuvers and healthy subjects. Because there were significant differences in peak expiratory flow between standing, lying, and sitting, they concluded that clinicians should measure peak flow with patients out of bed and in the standing position. The typical oxygen delivery methods used for long-term oxygen therapy are continuous flow oxygen and demand oxygen delivery. Lee and colleagues found that there is a region of compromise between oxygen savings and patient comfort that is filled by use of synchronized demand oxygen delivery. Synchronized demand oxygen delivery conserves oxygen while offering an equivalent FiO2 and may provide more comfortable oxygen delivery. The reasons for referral for pulmonary function testing were studied by Preto et al. They found that the majority of PFTs are performed to follow disease progression or response to treatment. This has implications for the interpretation of test results and the clinical utility of PFTs that should be considered by those performing the test and interpreting the test results. Because there is paucity of information on the weaning of nasal CPAP in preterm infants, Rostogi and colleagues evaluated gradual versus sudden approaches. There was no difference in the success of weaning off nasal CPAP between the two methods. Thus, it is important for clinicians to appreciate that the method used to wean CPAP is less important than other factors such as pulmonary maturity. Lynn et al. evaluated the survival in patients requiring an integrated system of reduced intensive respiratory care by the Taiwan Bureau of National Health Insurance. The one-year survival rates of the subjects before and after the program were 21% and 37% respectively, suggesting an improved survival rate for subjects who needed prolonged mechanical ventilation. Admitting patients with interstitial lung disease to the ICU is controversial. Gungor and colleagues evaluated the mortality of patients with interstitial lung disease requiring ICU support for acute respiratory failure. Survival for patients who received invasive or non-invasive ventilation was poor. Because of this mortality, mechanical ventilation should be used cautiously in the treatment of patients with interstitial lung disease and acute respiratory failure. This month we publish a review paper on the subject of apnea testing during brain death assessment. Our case reports, published online only, are on the topics of delayed pneumothorax after bronchoscopy in a lung transplant patient and fish fin aspiration. Our teaching cases, also published online only, are a case of exogenous lipoid pneumonia, progressive respiratory insufficiency in the absence of cardiac disease in late-stage Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and pseudohypoxemia in a patient with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. 
To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.